0: Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 439, Juggling Responsibilities. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at the Podcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Jonathan, Noah, and Andy for signing up already. There was no getting around it. William had been humiliated. The Duke of Normandy and King of England had spent years mocking his son. He'd even recruited the upper crust of Norman society into using the cruel nickname Short Pants to describe Robert. And when his son had rebelled, William doubled down on the disrespect and started calling him Robin, a comment that was intended to be a clear reference to both Robert's size and his belly. It was cruel, but it also was a pretty sick burn. William had worked hard to diminish Robert in the eyes of France, and he'd been pretty successful at it. But here's the problem. If Robert was a short, round laughingstock, then what did that make the guy who just got beaten by him on the battlefield? Making matters worse, what Robert had just done was honestly impressive. This wasn't some fluke or lucky break. William and Robert had met on the field in direct combat, and Robert had won. And that suggests one of two things. Either Robert had taken the bastard by surprise, probably by launching a sneak attack on the command unit, not unlike what William had done reportedly at Hastings, or the king had thought so little of the danger that his son posed that he charged into the field, along with his men, and paid for his arrogance in blood. Either way, William was weakened, physically, but also reputationally. And then as salt in the wound, Robert hadn't just wounded one of the most feared commanders in Europe and killed his horse. He also had shown him mercy. Despite all that had happened, despite all the cruelty, despite the fact that men were fighting and dying in the battlefield at that same moment, despite the fact that William's death would give Robert everything he wanted, Robert decided to be the bigger man and let all of that go and spare William's life. He gave him a chance to be a better person. And in modern terms, we call that big dick energy. So William's robins were coming home to roost. And Malmesbury tells us that the king was, quote, transported by anger. And this fury at his own son would last the rest of his life. William never got over this. He never forgave his son. Honestly, it looks like he never really calmed down about it either. In fact, we will see him being a complete bitch about it on his literal deathbed. And in modern terms, that's what we call small dick energy. And true, this was some industrial strength humiliation, but William's actions were only making it worse. And the European aristocracy of the 11th century was a relatively small community, and they loved their gossip. So of course, everyone was hearing about William's seething fury in the aftermath of this event. Everyone, including Robert himself. It turned out Dad wasn't inspired to turn over a new leaf and make things right. Which was disappointing. But Robert still had his crew with him. Orderick tells us that he was joined by Robert de Bellem, William de Bratouille, Roger, son of Richard Bianfe, Robert de Mowbray, William de Molinay, William de Rupier, and many other noblemen from influential families, all apparently with only three names to share between them. And these weren't just courtly hangers-on. We're told that they were true chivalric knights who were courageous, prideful, fierce on the battlefield, terrible in victory, and ready to take up any fight, just cause or not. And we're actually given that last bit because Orderic uh, wasn't exactly a fan. But Robert was, and he was playing the part of a proper Norman lord. They all took somber oaths to each other, Robert's men swore to uphold his rights and defend him with their lives, and he in turn freely distributed his wealth to his men. And together, they traveled. Early on, they spent time in Flanders, but after a while, they visited Trier. Then we're told they, quote, visited other noble kinsmen, dukes, counts, and powerful lords of castles in Lorraine, Germany, Aquitaine, and Gascony, end quote. That is a lot of travel. And interestingly, they just happened to be going to many of the major hotspots for that new cultural phenomenon that was sweeping Europe, the tournament. And when we talk about the tournament, don't think about intricate heraldry. Don't think about ladies handing out favors. Don't even think about the joust. All of that is gonna come later. Right now, these military games were all about the melee. And this was an event where knights would saddle up and do mock battle on a mini battlefield. So when you're imagining this thing, don't imagine what you'd see in like a knight's tale. Imagine something like Black Friday at a Walmart. And just like Black Friday, people were gathering from all over to watch the chaos that these maniacs were about to unleash upon each other. And they were having a great time. And predictably, soon everyone was going to these things. And not just knights who wanted to do something in between the various wars. No, damn near everyone wanted to see these events because it was really good entertainment. Now, obviously, the church hated this. It was a social event that they didn't control. Even worse, it was fun. And you know how God feels about fun. But we also have evidence that the most powerful secular powers were also a little queasy about what was happening here. Because these events were, at the end of the day, a gathering of the most important nobles in the land. The best knights, the richest magnates, and many of the up-and-coming members of new chivalric society were there. So this was where alliances could be forged and names were being made. And they were done in ways that had nothing to do with official bloodlines and ritual coronations that the most powerful members of secular authorities controlled. So this was both popular and unpopular depending where you were on the hierarchy. But where Robert was on the hierarchy put him right in line to want to go to all of these things. And it very much looks like while he was traveling around Europe, that was what he was doing. But he wasn't just traveling. We're also told... He was talking a whole lot of shit while he was doing it and airing the bastards dirty laundry to all of Europe. And according to Orderic, Robert was developing quite the knack for storytelling because he wasn't just plainly stating his grievances. He was also embellishing them and spicing the story up and the continental nobility were eating it up. We're told that they were quite eager to hear what Robert had to say and were totally happy to lend him a sympathetic ear. More than that, many of the most powerful nobles, quote, made him liberal presents end quote, which enabled Robert and his entourage to maintain their lifestyle. And speaking of that lifestyle, Norman culture, especially when it came to young knights, was fairly permissive. You could even argue it was downright presumptive. A young knight was expected to get out there and sow his wild oats. What I'm saying here is that the bastard wasn't the only bastard in Normandy, and knights were expected to keep up that tradition. Now, unfortunately for his sons, William seems to have had a bit of baggage on that front, and so he'd been a bit of a wet blanket as a father. See, dear old dad had issues with his own legitimacy, and so he kept his sons on a pretty short leash. but. Robert had escaped that leash. And Orderick tells us, with clear personal horror, that Robert and the boys were having a grand time with, quote, jugglers, parasites, and harlots. Yeah, jugglers. Have you no sense of decency, Robert? Juggling is the sort of thing best kept to places like Portland, where we were once famous for having a literal clown college. Now, obviously, this was incredibly juicy gossip. So, word of Robert working the devil sticks on Norman Rumsprigga was spreading pretty quickly. And eventually, it reached the ears of his mother, Queen Matilda. And can you imagine the horror that she felt learning that her baby was out there, unprotected, with jugglers? Even worse, it seems like Penn and Teller required a certain standard of living because even with the gifts from the other nobles, Robert's pockets were beginning to get a bit thin and he was having to seek out loans. And while Matilda seemed to have had no sway over William's feelings and couldn't do anything to end the feud, she could do something about Robert's financial situation. And so she began in secret sending Robert, quote, large sums of gold and silver and other things of value, end quote. And I really feel for Matilda here. It's hard to imagine that William bullying her son had sat well with her all of these years. And now this had escalated into outright war and she still couldn't do anything about it. She was one of the most powerful women in Europe, but because she was a woman, that power had serious limits, especially when it came to her husband. But it's pretty clear from the records that she disapproved of William's actions and was willing to act in secret to support her son as best as she could. Unfortunately, this was still Normandy. So inevitably, someone caught wind of what was going on and probably looking to raise their status in the king's eyes, promptly snitched on her when William learned of the source of Robert's fund money he went ape there's no record of specifically what he said to Matilda but apparently it included quote terrible threats end quote and he forbade her from sending any more money to support their son and these threats weren't idle William was the king he was also her husband His power over Matilda was insane. But apparently, she had given her last fuck. This was her baby boy. And besides, William only knew what the snitch knew. And Matilda, as a person who wasn't a total bastard, had a lot of connections and plenty of allies. So the funds continued to flow freely from the palace at Rouen to Robert. Don't get between the queen and her cub. Now, unfortunately, William was kind of paranoid, so he'd had his people keeping a close eye on Matilda, and it wasn't long before they noticed certain valuables were going missing. And certain friends of Matilda's were taking unexpected trips to foreign countries that also just happened to be where Robert was reportedly staying. And so, he confronted her about it. And according to Orderic, they had quite the fight. Basically, William opened up his marital tourney by accusing his wife of being unfaithful and treacherous, and it went downhill from there. At some point, he called Matilda his bane. He also told her that he loved her with all his soul, but not in a reconciliation way, but as an attack. Basically, some old French version of I love you so much, and all I get from you is this shit. He also pulled out that classic attack of how everything they had Every bit of treasure was actually his and she only had access to it because he trusted her, which now he didn't. And his rant kept going. And at some point he argued that this is why no women can be trusted since even his own wife would take his money and give it to his enemies. And Matilda had it up to here with William's self-centered bullshit and she didn't back down an inch. She basically said, well, Bill, if your metric for faithfulness is be willing to abandon and endanger your own children for the sake of your husband's pride, then yeah, you probably won't find any women that will meet that standard. Have you lost your goddamn mind? I would give my life for Robert. Literally, I would gladly trade my life for his, and I would suffer more than that if necessary. You think I give a damn about your money? You think your wealth impresses me or brings me joy? I want my son back, you ass. How dare you get in the way of that? You should be helping me. What the hell is wrong with you? And as Matilda spoke her mind, we're told the blood drained out of William's face. And I know I give Orderick a lot of shit, but I am so glad he included the details of this one. I'm not sure if this is actually how it went down, but it really does feel believable to me. And Matilda had definitely left a mark here. Unfortunately, William wasn't the type to say, Okay, I've gone a bit too far here. Um, Maybe I should talk to someone. Maybe we can talk to someone together. No, William had only one tool in his toolbox. So his response was to order his men to take one of Matilda's friends, a Breton by the name of Samson, and cut out his eyes. A real family guy, that William, and a clear romance for the ages, as that French historian claimed. Now, apparently, his men didn't actually know where Samson was, but Matilda did. So she sent word to Samson to flee to the Abbey of Saint-Evroux which he did and at matilda's request the abbot granted the poor man sanctuary and admitted him as a monk so that the king's torturers couldn't apprehend him as for matilda herself she was done she packed her bags and she went to germany now orderic insists that the reason that she went to germany was because she wanted to visit an unnamed hermit who lived in an undisclosed part of the region and you know get her fortune read Orderick says that she eventually found that hermit, who he never gives us any details about, and after three days of pleading, finally got her prophecy. The seer said William will die, and when Robert becomes Duke, all their neighbors are going to attack because Robert is weak, lascivious, and he surrounds himself with effeminate men. Normandy will burn, and they're all doomed, but... Don't worry too much about this, Matilda, because you're going to die real soon. You won't even see it. Worst tarot reading ever. But as a side note, I love how both Robert and Rufus get castigated by holy men for having friends who are just too damn sexy. These monks really need to go outside and touch some grass. But anyway, I don't want to pour cold water all over Orderick's story, but... I've got a prophet and he's totally awesome, but you don't know him because he goes to a different cave, isn't particularly convincing. And I don't think there is actually a prophetic monk. I suspect that this was Order trying to write this episode into some sort of religious sense and make a lesson out of it. Because I would bet you pretty much anything that that trip to Germany had nothing to do with prophetic hermits. And everything to do with the fact that William went way too far and Matilda, living at a time where divorce was really hard to obtain, needed some space. Probably all of the space. And I find it quite interesting that she chose Germany, which just happens to be on the list of places that Robert was visiting during his time as a knight errant. I think she wanted to see her son and maybe try and find a way to bring an end to all of this, or at least help him. Meanwhile, back in Normandy, William was mad. Big mad. And just like his son, William was sharing his grievances widely. And a father bitching about his son to anyone who will listen isn't a great look. Not now, and not then. And he was the king of England and the duke of Normandy for pity's sake. They couldn't just have an embarrassing argument on their Facebook wall, delete it in the morning, and then act like nothing happened like a normal dysfunctional family. No, when these guys had embarrassing outbursts, it had political consequences for large swaths of the European community because succession rules weren't set in stone. And this Nicki Minaj, Meghan the Stallion level beef was spilling out into the public, and that meant England and Normandy were staring down the possibility of yet another succession crisis. And considering that the last succession crisis was the reason why Sir Ralph now had a bunch of fancy new English estates, well, you can imagine how worried everyone was at the possibility of history repeating itself. Also, remember that William had a lot of enemies you know, outside of the ones that he was making within his own family. And even the friends he had were chivalric nobles, which aren't exactly the most rock steady of friends. And all of this instability and chaos that they were creating was basically like ringing the dinner bell. So they were in a dangerous spot. And the first hint of trouble on the horizon actually came from the papacy because Pope Gregory was starting to flex. Now, explaining this situation fully would require a whole series of episodes, and it's well outside the scope of this podcast. But I'll give you the short version. Basically, there was a major power struggle taking place within the church. At the center of it was Pope Gregory and his allies, who were seeking to radically transform the institution. Now, they were ultimately successful, and that's why they're remembered as reformers rather than heretics. But while this was all going down, that was an open question, and there was a ton of opposition. So this was a period of constant power struggles, and among them was the issue of Normandy and England. You see, in the eyes of the church, William was a bit of a disappointment. Back when Pope Gregory was known as Hildebrand, he'd actually advised Pope Alexander to support William's conquest. And when he'd done that, there had been certain expectations, religious expectations, and they hadn't materialized. And I'm not talking about pacifism or something. All that murdering, pillaging, and full-blown genocide from the conquest, that had already been absolved by the Pope years ago, just the cost of doing business. The problem was that William's rise to the throne should have been the first foray into a new era for the church, one where the popes chose kings and kings served under popes. But as far as anyone could tell, William didn't think he served under anyone. Adding salt to the wound, William wasn't a stabilizing force in Christendom. Quite the opposite. Wherever he went, war followed. This whole thing was turning into a debacle, and it was a debacle that Pope Gregory had been publicly involved in from the start, which was really starting to grate on his nerves. But William had been too powerful to be challenged. However, right as William and Robert decided to duke it out in 1078, the Pope and his allies made a rather significant move at the Council of Poitiers. Suddenly, they felt safe enough to make a bunch of their reforms. And among them were the banning of kings and other secular figures from handing out investitures. Meaning that they were declaring that secular leaders could no longer appoint important church figures like they had been doing. Do you remember all the appointments of bishops and archbishops that kings and emperors have been making all these years? Well, this reform was an effort to put a stop to that. And that was a huge deal and a direct attack on an area where secular powers, like William, had exercised authority over the church. They also banned practices that allowed church officials to monetize their positions, like buying and selling church positions, church properties, and even blessings and consecrations. They also banned churches from running payday loan businesses, ordaining children as priests, and a whole bunch of other stuff. Looking at the list of reforms, it's pretty surprising to see what they were doing, because to us now, this sounds completely insane and corrupt, which itself is a sign of how successful the Pope and his friends were. But back then, this very much was a matter of debate, and a lot of very powerful people didn't want these changes especially the secular authorities who were seeing their influence restricted and the ecclesiastical authorities who had lucrative side hustles that were now being banned. So there were disputes and power struggles over this kind of stuff. And Pope Gregory was running into issues with a few French archbishoprics, not to mention one Norman king. And you could really see how much continental politics had changed when on April 20th of 1079, Pope Gregory issued a bull where he established the primate of the Gauls, which, unfortunately, wasn't a Planet of the Apes prequel. No, this decree established a new hierarchy in the church. The archbishopric of Lyon would now have primacy over the archbishoprics of Tours and Sens and also the Norman archbishopric of Rouen. This bull mandated that those archbishops would serve under the Archbishop of Lyon, and their archdiocese would be under his purview as the primate of the Gauls. So even if they were technically still archbishops, they still had to answer to the Pope's guy down south in Lyon. It was a dramatic shift in power and loss of status for those three very influential archbishoprics. It was also the very first time that Pope Gregory or really any pope, had applied any pressure to William. And that was a bad sign for the bastard. Oh, and speaking of bastards, another new rule that they applied was that bastards were now banned from serving as anything higher than a regular monk or a priest. Ouch. There were storm clouds on the horizon here, and William's vassals spotted them and were starting to get a bit nervous. This conflict and the opportunities it was creating for Normandy's rivals had spiraled out of control, and it was now having long-term effects. Really long-term effects, in fact. Some of you might have noticed that the primate of the Gauls is still a title that exists today. So, Orderick reports that some of the nobility decided to do something about it, and they gathered a council of their own. With Earl Roger de Montgomery, Roger de Beaumont, Earl Hugh of Chester, Hugh de Gournay, and Hugh de Grandes Menil. A grand alliance of Rogers and Hughes. In fact, many of the best Rogers and Hughes that Normandy had to offer. And we're told that the Rogers and Hughes were doing their best to broker a peace between Robert and William. But William had no interest in peace. Well, I guess that's not entirely true. According to Orderic, William did want peace. And he agreed they would have peace once he had Robert executed. Matilda was notably still in Germany at this point. Anyway, so as all of this was going on, back across the channel, England was without its king. William's attentions were completely focused on Normandy for obvious reasons. And so the task of running England was left to his half-brother, Odo. And we'll get to what Odo did with his power later on. But for right now, the important thing to know was that William was still king. And so even though he was in absentia, he could still issue decrees. And those decrees would need to be followed. And in 1079, right as William's conflict with his son had exploded to the point where it was also blowing apart his marriage, William made a declaration And it was one that would go on to have enormous political, geographical, and even nutritional implications for the English for centuries, even up to the present day. He declared that the forest where his son Richard had died would now be a king's forest. Now, king's forests, sometimes called king's woods, were a brand new thing in England which, I suspect, is why this one was recorded in the Doomsday Book as Nova Foresta, the New Forest. And this was a continental practice that, like so many others, was now being imposed upon the English. And there is a lot to what constitutes a royal forest. But at the most basic level, these were regions that were reserved for the king, exclusively only he was allowed to hunt or take advantage of its natural resources. Once declared a Kingswood, a forest was off-limits for everyone unless they had the king's permission. For England, this meant that if you lived in or near to one of these forests that were declared a Kingswood, suddenly a major source of food and natural resources that your family had relied upon for generations was just taken and you had no recourse. That forest was the king's now. And if you went hunting there, or if you cleared some land or cut down a tree, then you were committing a crime against the king. And the punishments for that were pretty gruesome. And it didn't matter whether or not your family had been doing that for generations. It didn't matter if your livelihood depended on it. It didn't matter if your kids went hungry or even if your entire village couldn't feed itself without having access to the woods surrounding your home. If the king declared that land a royal forest, then you're done. You can't hunt. You can't log. You can't forage. Nothing. And it gets worse. If you live in the forest and you're carefully avoiding hunting or logging or any of the other forbidden activities. But your village is a bit of an eyesore and is disrupting the rugged aesthetic that's preferred by the king and his entourage? Well, then you gotta go. And that's not theoretical. The moment that the new forest was established, communities were cleared from the woods on the king's orders. By law, the place your family had called home for generations was now a vacation spot. Bon chance. And people had deep roots in these places. England, in particular, has populations that reach back into the Stone Age. For example, when they sequenced Cheddarman's DNA, they found a relative of his living in the same village. And Cheddarman lived over 10,000 years ago. So this was economically and emotionally devastating for the English who were living in or near to the New Forest. So why do it? Well, I mean the Norman aristocrats did love to go hunting. And there was a reason why William's good son, Richard, had chosen that particular forest to go hunting in. The new forest was just a short ride from Winchester and it had really good game to hunt and it was crazy picturesque. So it seems like an obvious choice to get snapped up by a conqueror. But what I find really interesting here is when this happens because this is right at the moment when William's eldest son was in rebellion and his wife was on a German holiday. And William chose that moment to declare the place where Richard died, who was the son that everyone agreed was the good one, well, that place would now be off limits. And I mean, it's possible this is all just a coincidence. And William just really liked going hunting in the place where his son died and he suddenly became interested in wildlife conservationism while he was fighting a war against his other son. It's possible. But considering that he didn't even bother to visit England for years at this time, I find it really hard to believe he was super interested in making sure he had the perfect hunting grounds once he deigned to cross the channel. To me, this seems much more like it had to do with emotions than it did with ruining Bambi's day. But regardless of his motivations, William was definitely ruining the lives of a lot of Englishmen. Because for the Normans, this was about recreation. But for the English who called these lands home for generations, this was about survival. And we're not talking about small parks or isolated pockets of wildlife. The new forest was big. Really big. Still is, for that matter. And William's decree was just the beginning of this practice, and his successors would expand the scale of these seizures substantially. For example, William's great-grandson, King Henry II, declared all of Huntingdonshire a royal forest in 1154. So this isn't just impacting isolated hermits living in shacks in the woods. We're talking about an entire freaking shire waking up one day and discovering that the king has declared that they can't go hunting anymore. They can't build new farms. They can't use local lumber. They can't do many of the things that they've relied upon for generations, not unless somehow they got the king's permission. We'll also see this happen to Essex. In fact, At the height of this practice, about a third of southern England will be declared a royal forest. And while later kings definitely did this because they wanted their own special places that would be lush and crawling with deer so they could easily hunt, you know, like one of those modern fenced-in hunting preserves for rich people, I wonder if it all started because William was making political decisions based upon personal grief and distress. Either way, though, he probably should have put his attention towards political and military matters. Because the Pope wasn't the only person who noticed that William was in a precarious position. This war with Robert hadn't just been a personal distraction. It had also resulted in a redeployment of William's forces. We read of English soldiers fighting alongside William in his war against Robert. And William's army in France had to have been large considering that its presence was sufficient enough to cause King Philip of France to abandon his support of Robert in order to avoid a war with William. And it turns out that across the border in Scotland, King Malcolm had been keeping up with current affairs. And a wounded William, a wounded Rufus, a battered English-Norman army, a bunch of the English soldiers being redeployed in France, and the entire court being distracted by an embarrassingly public family rift, well, that was all the excuse he needed. So he mustered his army, and in late summer of 1079, they marched into northern England, ravaging and pillaging all the lands between the River Tees and the River Tweed. And apparently, the Normans couldn't do anything about it. Because this raiding went on for months. And that began to give the English some ideas. The kind of ideas that Matilda might have been having. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at at thebritishhistorypodcast.gmail.com And if you want to meet some fellow history nerds, head over to thebritishhistorypodcast.com Click Communities and join a few. We'll see you there.